0: Okay, there are times in life where you just have to take the bull by the horns and make a dramatic change. And today, we're going to hear the story of one such situation. It's the story of a guy who, by not taking the easy route and signing up for an exec position in a poorly run company, has found the secrets to creating an empowering and enabling workplace culture, which leads to personal and business success. It's so successful, people come from far and wide just to visit Menlo and see it all in action. And in a dramatic change to the format of this show, well, maybe dramatic with a very small D, I don't have a big introduction to set the episode up because I want to use every minute I can to listen to his story and chat about all the things it throws up. So today, I'm delighted to have with me Rich Sheridan. And Rich is the co-founder of Menlo Innovations, a very different Detroit-based technology company, and more on that later. And the author of two best-selling books, Joy Inc. and The Chief Joy Officer. And today, we'll be talking about how to intentionally create a joyful workplace culture and reap the many benefits of doing so.
1: Welcome to the show, Rich. Andy, great to be with you. I can't wait for this conversation.
0: I know. I, I think is it what four months maybe even five months so we've we first got put into contact with each other from perry tims the inevitable perry tims and i have been waiting for this conversation it feels like forever so so pleased to have you here today my friend so pleased to have you here um look i'm a bit of a, a rich sheridan geek i've kind of like done my research and uh enjoy your stuff But for just some of my listeners who don't know you and don't know Menlo, would you mind just giving us a brief introduction to both, please?
1: You bet. Uh, So as you said, I'm a co-founder, CEO, chief storyteller here at Menlo Innovations. I'm guessing we'll have a few stories to share today (laughs) and talk about the importance of storytelling and creating that intentionally joyful culture uh, as we dive in. Uh, My personal story is as a programmer. I started out when I was just a kid touching a computer uh, for the first time when I was just 13, over 50 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just say computers were a little different back in those <laughs> days. Uh, but I got hooked early on and quickly, and I thought this is going to be a cool profession to be in, writing software. You know, And, of course, back then you know, I, I must have had some kind of weird crystal ball because obviously software has become a huge deal these days. Um, But, you know, I just thought it'd be a great way to express my own creativity. Uh, And uh, I eventually got into this business deep and hard. I graduated with a couple of degrees in computer science, computer engineering and launched a career that by all external measures looked perfect. You know, every year was raises and promotions and stock options and greater title and greater authority and bigger teams to run and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my parents were very proud of me. My wife was very happy with the life I was providing for all of us and our family. And yet there was this other line. And by my mid thirties, I looked ahead 30 years and I said, I can't do this anymore. I certainly can't do it for another three decades and survive. Uh, because while the world success looked great from the outside, what I was seeing on the inside was chaos, bureaucracy, blown budgets, missed deadlines, poorly run, poorly managed projects, ones I was leading. So, I mean, this was, you know, me looking at me saying, I am maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe it's just not the right thing for me. Maybe I'm not smart enough. But then as I surveyed my industry, you know, the software technology industry, I found my story was a common one. And so I faced an important juncture at that moment in my mid thirties, where I thought, A, I really contemplated getting out. I just didn't want to be here anymore. But B, I, you know, <laughs> the, the, the road less traveled was, well, what if you could do things differently? What if you could change the way things do and produce a different kind of result? And that became my all-consuming thought at that point in my life.
0: And today, the kernel of joy that was somewhere back in the recesses of your brain has gone on to produce something quite incredible. Where, in that whole kind of almost despair that you describe, where where was the kernel of thought that talked about joy, particularly, Rich? Where did that come from?
1: Yeah, there, there were a few moments for me, Andy. One kind of frightening moment, actually, given the delta between the initial thought and where things actually happened. Uh, When I was still a student here at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where we reside and our company is um, just outside of Detroit, I had this dream as a student. I was 20 years old. And I thought, you know what? I know what I want in my career. I want to be in a energized team with a, in a big open space with lots of human energy and camaraderie and teamwork and collaboration. I, it's just, I could even picture it like right down to the kind of building we were going to be in. And I just maybe box that up and put it on a shelf in the back of my mind while I pursued all the busyness of life, right? Getting married, buying a house, having three daughters, you know, building a career, going through everything all of us go through in life. And there was this moment walking into Menlo in about 2007. So we're talking, you know, at this point now, almost 20 years gap between that initial thought as that young college student and walking in Menlo. And it was like, boom, congratulations. That dream you had as a 20-year-old has now manifested itself and you've done it, way to go. And it was so crazy because I thought I haven't been like, carefully pursuing this. There was like some silent driver in the back of my head that was pointing me in this direction. Uh, The joy word came up a little later. Mm -hmm. Uh, It had always been in our mission statement, really from like day one amendment. We started the company in 2001. So we just passed our 20th birthday, which is remarkable. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, And I will tell you, given the last two years, it feels particularly remarkable. (laughs) What a two Uh, years. But in our mission, where we talk about ending human suffering in the world as it relates to technology, which I think in the early days was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it was always seriously there, we said down at the bottom of the mission statement, we want to return joy to one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken, the invention of software. And we really believe that software is just different, right? It's 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 intangible in some ways. But I didn't really focus on the word joy until about 10 years into Menlo, when somebody started poking at me about Simon Sinek's start with why message. And they said, you know, what is your why? And I realized our why was that joy piece. Mm. We wanted to return joy to an industry that had lost its joy. And when you were thinking around that joy concept, Rich,
0: what's the definition of joy for you? And for for me as a kind of guy who still can't get away from an old marketing hat. Did the joy start with customer in mind or did you start internally with your with your people? What's that journey like?
1: Yes. Well, the first time I started talking about joy, people would ask me that question, where does this joy come from for you? Hmm. And I will tell you, it was fairly easy for me to say, but I'll, I'll tell you, there's two versions of this story too. When I started digging deeper, I found a much more Uh, sort of existential part of the joy for me personally. But when I talk about joy at Menlo, it's fairly easy to define. Mm -hmm. We want to delight the people we intend to serve, that the joy for us comes from creating software that delights people, that, you know, this easy to use, works reliably every single day. And we give the team our team, the chance to work with that kind of pride. And that's what I was missing for me early on in my career. Right. So those who don't know the software industry well, and think we're the shining city on the Hill, which most people do think about that with the high tech industry, we are not, we are full of turmoil on the inside. We work on things that never see the light of day. Some people spend years working on stuff that just gets pushed off the side of the boat into the ocean. And it's depressing yeah. To work on, to spend years of your life working on something that never sees the light of day. And so for me, I wanted to give our team a chance as Deming, the uh, you know, famous quality guru would say, we wanted to give our team a chance to work with pride, mm. to work on things that actually got done, got delivered to the world and delighted the people they intended to serve so much that people would come back later and say, I love this software. And we've been able to do that over 20 years. It's been remarkable. But for me personally, when I really started digging deeper, I got back to a much earlier version of me. Hmm. And when I was 10, my parents went out for dinner and a movie, and my mom had bought today's equivalent of an Ikea bookshelf, right? It was out in the garage in a cardboard box. Mom wanted it in the living room. And my 10 year old inner engineer kicked in and I went out in the garage and I built this eight foot wide, six foot tall, 50 pieces of wood, 200 little nuts, bolts, and screws bookshelf for my mom. Right. And I was so proud of myself. And then it dawned on me, no, you, you, mom wants it in the living room. You built it in the garage. Right, And so I inched that thing out of the front of the garage, down the sidewalk, into the house, right into the living room where mom wanted it, set up her her knickknacks set up my dad's books, wired up the stereo. When they walked in the door, I had my mom's favorite album playing and she cried. Wow. And for me, that defines joy for a human being service to others. When the work of your heart, your hands and your minds is done to serve others with delight. And for me, that's where the joy comes from here at Venmo. The ability to delight others with the work that happens in the room behind me here,
0: I just love that. I mean that that's a beautiful answer to a, a simple a simple enough question about customer or employee and ones with the focus in mind. The others an outcome, right? That the, the pleasure and the joy that you get from from doing the thing that you do that someone else really enjoys and takes on, and it helps them. And to your earlier your earlier purpose point, you know, changes their world for the better.
1: Yep. And, you know, and all of us have this opportunity, right? In everything we do, there is that service-oriented approach. And I wanted to dig into that because if I look at Joy
0: Inc. and what people say about the book and, and why people come to Menlo, people can fall into the trap that thinking this is, you know, another sort of lean kaizen thing and it's just for software developers and if you don't understand tech what are you you doing and i I don't get the sense of that for me personally this is far more about i guess leadership yes there's the continuous incremental improvement pieces but there's this respect for people there's taking pride in your work there's a much bigger ecosystem at play here when we talk about joy Um, have i read read that right (laughs) rich or is is he taking another view
1: Yes, we did this in the context of a software company, mm. but the principles underlying this of teamwork and collaboration and trust and human relationships and human energy and empathy for those we serve and, uh, you know, and caring for each other, they are universal principles. They don't apply just, we just happen to apply it in the context of a software company.
0: And I think that's really interesting because that word human, it just keeps them coming up so much. And I'm so pleased that, that it's 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 far more in business parlance today. But if you look back to those 20 years ago, Rich, in the software industry, I mean, was, was it a very human place or was it a real
1: oh, process-led yeah. place? I mean, no, it, it was it was neither. It was chaos. Right. Right. I mean, the software industry is one. I mean, it, everybody's so used to the term 24-7 now, right? It, it makes sense, right? 24-7, right? Mm. That was a work schedule. That term actually came out of the software industry. You're working 24-7, and it wasn't three shifts. This was the same people. We were killing ourselves and producing incredibly bad quality while doing it. Most people forget now, because things have gotten so much better in the industry in general, the blue screen of death in Microsoft operating systems, right? (laughs) Now, let me tell you the, the where that led to for the rest of the industry, because Microsoft took off like a rocket. It was one of the biggest early high-tech stories there was. And so for all the rest of us who weren't at Microsoft, when we would try and argue for Could we spend a little more time and make sure what we ship is actually going to work for people and is actually going to work at all and not going to have lots of errors that are going to cause people to call, you know, upset and angry and, you know, firefighting galore. The bosses, the executives, the shareholders, the investors would all be like, well, you know, Microsoft just ships stuff that doesn't work and look at how big they are. (laughs) And we're like, okay, number one, we're not Microsoft. Number two, I don't think they like it either right? That they're shipping crappy quality and it just screws up all the time. And quite frankly, software is way too important now because it's in everything. Back then, it just didn't matter as much if you lost your Word document. You could go back to the typewriter if you needed to. We can't do that anymore. And so it became this accepted norm that chaos is the way. Ship stuff, we'll fix it later. Don't worry about screw-ups. Don't worry about delivering stuff that doesn't you know, isn't usable by regular human beings. We'll fix it later. Well, I'll tell you nev- later, never, ever came for most of us. And that became the norm in my industry. And that's why I was thinking of getting out by my thirties. Cause I thought, you know what? I'd come home after long days and my wife would look at tired me and say, honey, you look really tired. Mm. Did you get a lot done today? And I'd say, no, I got nothing done today. And she's like, you don't look happy. And I'm like, I'm not. She said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I don't know. And that was, that was my mid-career. That was my sort of existential career crisis where I was thinking, i got to just, if I'm going to keep me alive, i got to get out. And I chose this crazy change process. Now, I'll tell you, one of the books I read way back in the early 80s was uh, Megatrends by John Naisbitt. Oh, okay. And one of his famous quotes that I just loved then, and I love it even more because I think it's more meaningful today than it's ever been. Is that the greatest advancements that are going to occur in the 21st century? Now he was writing this back in the 80s. Mm. Okay, so he's projecting. He's a futurist. Says the greatest advances that are going to occur in the 21st century are not going to occur because of technology, but because of a greater understanding of what it means to be human. Wow. Wow. And for me, that's what this is all about. That's why you and I are connected. That's why you and I are talking. <laughs> yeah. Because it's all about the humans.
0: hundred percent agree with that, my friend. And in the face of all of that chaos in an industry, where did you start taking it apart and doing something different? I mean, because you one it starts with one day you walk in and do something different, right? What, what what was that for you?
1: Yeah, and for me it was this combination of a few things that okay. all happened in close proximity. And probably 15 years of just reading and preparing my mind for when this magical kind of two weeks happened, um, it was clear that I, I now understood where I was going. And so the three events were I met a guy, James Goble who is now my co-founder here at Menlo. He was a consultant at the time. Mm -hmm. I was bringing him in to do some fairly mundane things for my technical team. He was going to teach them this new way of working. He and his other consultants, but James was the lead consultant. He was going to teach my programmers how to do this technical new thing called object-oriented software development. Okay, That was all the rage back in the late 90s. So That's why I was bringing James in, to teach them a new way of technically working because I thought... Hey, that's what we need. We need a, just a new way of developing software <laughs> to make everything better, right? Um, and uh, then I saw a, a video on an industrial design firm in California called IDEO. And Nightline, uh, one of the famous nighttime uh, television news shows, did an episode on, night, on IDEO, watching them do design work, which was critical to my path forward because I knew you know, remember, I we are in an industry still to this day that calls the people we serve stupid users, mm-hmm. and then we write dummies books for those poor people. <laughs> <laughs> so true, right? And it's like, and my thought was, it, it shouldn't be that way. We, you know, how many times have you heard anybody say, "Could you dumb that down for yeah. me?" Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just a stupid user. Could you dumb it down? No. If we're going to make software work for humans, guess what? We need to smarten up the software. We don't need to dumb down the people using the software. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, this video convinced me there was a better way of attaching to the humans through a design process, which now is called design thinking. And we have a part of Menlo we call high tech anthropology, which is all about studying the humans. Okay. So there was James Goble, there was that IDEO video, and then I read a book by a equally frustrated programmer named Kent Beck who started talking about a new way of approaching software work that he dubbed extreme programming. Hmm. And it was just a different way of working. And one of the concepts in the book just blew my mind when I first got it, like so much like, oh, okay, I can't do that, but I could probably <laughs> do the other stuff he's talking about. And it was talking about putting two people together on one computer a oh, technique now called Paired Programming, yeah, which we have used for the entire 20 years of Memo. But meeting James, seeing that video, reading that book, all happened within just a few weeks of one another. And James came back to me at some point. Remember, i he's a consultant. I'm paying him lots of money <laughs> for programmers to do this one new thing. And he asked me the question that has defined our relationship ever since. He said, what problem are you trying to solve? Nice. I'm like, what? I said, James, the problem is my programmers don't know how to do object-oriented development. And he goes, Rich, that might be a solution, but it is certainly not a problem. And so we, he and I got into this really interesting discussion, almost a philosophical discussion about what I really wanted from my career. Mm. And he looked at me he says, well, the thing you hired me to do then isn't going to solve that problem. All the things I was just talking about, right? Yeah. He and I began a journey back when I was VP of R&D at this tired old public company. And over the next two years, based on those discussions that happened in a very short period of time, James and I reinvented that tired old public company into something that looks like Menlo does today. Took six months. And then we got to run it for two years. And then the whole thing fell apart when the dot-com bubble burst. And while I lost everything, stock options went to zero, paycheck went away, key didn't work in the front door of the building anymore. <laughs> they couldn't take away what James and I had learned in those two years. And we started Menlo with the learnings of those two years. It was like we got a chance, unlike most would ever have in their careers, to build the prototype for our company. And that's how we launched Menlo.
0: And so when, and we mentioned in the intro People come from far and wide to take a tour. Often you're the tour guide around Menlo. What are the principles, the characteristics that Menlo is built on today that people come and, and want to see for themselves?
1: Yeah, I, I think what they're coming for is some lessons around what it takes to build an intentionally joyful culture. And what what they really want and i think this is what they get when they come here is you know you can you can listen to podcasts you can attend conferences you can read books you can hear presentations at conferences by speakers like me and you get excited but every once in a while somebody wakes up and says you know what i want to see an actual example mm-hmm. of this at work could i see just one example And that's what we became. Not that we're the only example in the world where people can go and visit, but it's still rare to be able to get on an airplane, go spend a few days, step inside of a company and see everything. Yeah. Right. And see this living, breathing example, get a chance to interact. And I will tell you, when they walk in the front door, that's right over there. And I'm often walking in with them. The first word out of their mouth. Wow. Because even in our sort of covid depleted people in the room (laughs) where most people are working at home there is still a palpable human energy in the room and people feel it and and right from that moment of first stepping in the door and there's there's a lot of visual stuff here and they want to see how we manage stuff they want to see how we you know how we run the team they want to see everything we do and we're willing to share all that with them uh but i think that what they're looking for right off the bat is. Can I actually feel it? Yeah. They do when they walk in the door. It is the most common word I hear when people walk in our front doors. Wow.
0: It's such an easy thing to forget over the last two years, that feeling of being around other humans Mm -hmm. with a shared purpose in mind. And I can only liken it to getting back into training rooms or facilitation rooms where I'm helping with some leadership development or no values discovery. I I thought that I was a pretty good empath, rich doing zoom calls and and interacting with people and making them feel good. I, I almost burst into tears when I went back into the room with people again, because you're right. That feeling that you get from being around others, it's like turning everything up full technicolor on your TV after only having black and white right yes it, it, it's that's a great analogy it, it's only it's it's huge and I, and i guess when people come to a place where they think there's going to be guys in pods tapping on computers writing software deathly silent because they need to concentrate they come to your your place wide open space guys sat together chatting working stuff through that's just not what they expect
1: right yes i mean this is the antithesis yeah to be fair, and I want to channel, you know, some amount of your audience, we have one of those vilified open office environments. people <laughs> <talk> about, <right? laughs> yeah. this, You know, Fast Company magazine described our kind of space as an idea born in the mind of Satan in the deepest difference <laughs> of hell. <God>, right, <laughs> and and if any of your audience says, "I'd like to get the argument against open office spaces," and there's more of them today than there've ever been. I got all the books, I've got all the articles, but I would also say, then don't come and visit us because your mind's going to do yet another flip. And and now we went through pandemic just like everybody else did. We all went home and we had to figure out how do we keep all of those pieces and parts alive, even when we're all apart from one another. And what we realized very quickly is while we did indeed need to be apart physically to be safe and health, we didn't need to be apart socially mm. social distancing just didn't make sense to us it's not the right term physical distancing absolutely being apart being safe in our homes and offices so or you know safe at home away from the offices so we could remain healthy and not get this insidious virus that was critical mm. right but we continued to modify and extend and, and quite frankly the tours started up again very quickly after the pandemic, but they were all virtual. Right. And now we have thousands of people coming virtually from all over the world to see how we adjusted, how we adapted. And we're now in this third phase of Menlo. If the first phase was the part we've been talking about, second phase was pandemic Menlo. The third phase is what is it going to be like post pandemic? Because there are things you and I and everybody have learned that we can't unlearn. There's things we've seen. We can't unsee. Mm. We will be a much more flexible workplace going forward than we've ever been. What does that look like for you, Rich? Have you, have you, have you got you and the guys sort of worked it through, or are you, are you still
0: trying to sort of get the best of both worlds?
1: Just like everybody else, right now. I mean, here we are in the middle of you know everybody's. I mean, the big question in everybody's minds is: Is this a dip before yeah. the next surge, or are we really done? Um, so, the way I've described this to the team. Uh, is our three-step plan like many have is right now we're in the phase of some people in the office some of the days and who comes in and how many days they get to decide Mm -hmm. Round about early April we're going to be most people are in the office some of the days so the setting up an expectation balance is hey look we want you to come in one two three days a week You get to decide. We're not setting a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday schedule, nothing like that. Just you decide. We can make it work both ways. Mm -hmm. There will come a point, again, you know, without being able to predict the future, I will just say trends continue the way they are. We'll be at the point where most people will come in most days. And, again, the word choices is is a careful one. We want to presume flexibility. Somebody has to stay home for the cable guy. If we have a snowy day here in Ann Arbor, like we do in the wintertime and kids are home from school and you want to work from home, you don't have to take a day off to do that. If you can make it work at home, Mm. you know, if uh, my co-founder's off today because a family member needs some sort of in person support, but he can still work. That's the way it's going to be going forward. We're going to have that flexibility and I think we'll be healthier because of it.
0: I'm sure you will be.
1: I mean, in your mind at the moment, do you, when people are coming together, are
0: you focusing on the creativity?
1: No, I think there's two big things we get out of being in closer physical proximity, to one another. Mm. Number one is just, <laughs> I think people under appreciate what kind of serendipity engine the human mind is. Yeah. You overhear something and you're like, Oh, that's a great idea. And it turns out, guess what? You didn't even overhear what you thought you overheard. So true. Right? you heard it wrong and it, put a new idea in your head that was a solution to a problem you're fighting with all morning. Right. That's, you don't get that when it's just two of us on a zoom screen together. So true Overhear others, the second thing, and this is way more important. And this is the part, even, we've hired a bunch of people during the pandemic who've never been an in person mental. So they don't even get this part yet. Help arrives without asking for help. Nice. Because what will happen is two people in a room be like this. And all of a sudden, others are gathering, saying, hey, what's going on? What do you mean, what's going on? Well, you look like you're stuck. Well, I mean, we're not stuck. We're thinking about. us. Oh, really? What are you thinking about? Well, we don't know how to solve this problem. <laughs> oh, so you need help solving the problem. Why don't we talk about it, right? Help arrives without asking for help.
0: So easy and, to forget those things. Oh. Yep so easy to forget that environment and people often talk about oh you don't get the water cooler chats and all that kind of stuff but it's it's more than that
1: we almost have to get down to basic physiology of how are human beings constructed right and and i will tell you a lot of people look at us and go oh so you must hire a bunch of extras oh no god no (laughs) if we had too many extroverts, and I'm not saying we don't want extroverts either, but there was probably a limit switch on extroversion here that would wreck the place because people would be in chit-chat mode all day. Hey, what's going on this weekend? How are you doing? I mean, we got one guy on the team that everybody dearly loves, but if the room was filled with Andrews, we'd all go crazy. And even Andrew would probably go crazy. Um, And so – what people want, I think, you know, and again, I, am not an expert on this. I've just had 20 years of watching this. So my, my, uh, observations observations are, are filled with practicality of having watched it for 20 years, that introverts don't prefer sensory deprivation and isolation. What they prefer are fewer, safer, deeper relationships with other people. And they get that here. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think it was a bit of an introvert's paradise, but over time, the loneliness and the isolation starts to lead to mental health issues. And it's, it's sort of like a tax bill that's coming due. And, you know, after a while you start to realize, no, we humans are wired to be in concert with one another collaboration with one another. You know, that human energy, that camaraderie. I mean, I had a guy who worked for us for the end of his career, you know, it's like he worked up to 65 and then he retired. So he ended his career at Menlo Dan was his name. And, um, and he said one day, he said, I have never worked in a place that has had as much laughter as I hear here at Menlo. And you realize that laughter is really an important part of our humanity It's where we let off steam. It's where we poke fun at ourselves. It's where we get enough sarcasm and cynicism about the thing we're fighting against that we can actually not take ourselves too seriously so we can let off that steam and, and move on to the next thing. Uh, And it just, it portends a relationship. I don't think people can laugh easily with other human beings if they don't have relationships with them.
0: Absolutely. I think I, i recently qualified in some personality profiling stuff and I, I love that world i mean it's just a fascinating world and the more you scratch at the surface the more you understand and not just the self-awareness thing but the whole intentional relationships and i think that your use of the word intentional within your intentionally creating joyful um environments is is so important right because i think bringing people together for purpose to your point loads of extroverts and happy clappy and everybody's chatting away That's that's just fun, right? We're we're talking about having some purpose behind that, and that's a great thing, a really really good thing. But you need balance. You really well. If you want
1: happy clappy, you go to the bar at night. Yeah, right. This is about work.
0: Yeah, you have got work to do.
1: This is. I mean, (laughs) at the end of a day, you'd love. I mean, again, this is probably this is going to be the attractive force of Menlo for the people to come and join us. Join us is. I want to go to work. I want to work hard. I want to go home tired feeling. I got meaningful things actually done. Not started, not running from one thing to the next, not the chaos of, you know, interruptions all day long and flitzing from that and multitasking and all that kind of stuff, which is what my early career was like when I'd come home tired and I got nothing done, which is debilitating. But the ability to go to work and get meaningful things actually done where you feel like you're making a contribution to mankind, to humanity, to your clients, to the people who end up using your work. That's what we want. We want to feel like, you know, and the fact it is is, is true today, more true than it's probably ever been in order to do meaningful things in today's society, as complex as it is, and as many choices as we all want and everything, we need teams of human beings working together. There are very few opportunities for individual heroism in business. Yeah. In fact, we strip away the heroic part of the memo. We make it about the team
0: and i'm such an easy sell on this stuff rich i mean i've said i've said how much i was enjoying waiting to speak to you and it's been brilliant and is brilliant talking to you but do you ever get people kind of scoff at the whole idea of a joyful workplace do you, do you, do you get people kind of going this is nuts and what's what are the sort of things they're asking you or saying to you and how do you respond
1: yeah every single day <laughs> No question. I mean, I just saw it on Twitter the other day. Some, and they were copying me and every one of them. And the guy, one of the guys in this, somebody I have deep respect for said, yeah, I wish he hadn't chosen the word joy. Oh, you know, describe in some other way. I get it. I understand it. You know, and and somebody else, you know, who doesn't know me at all says, well, I'm guessing it's joy for him. You know, the founder, the owner, blah, 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 but you know, uh, probably not for the team. And like, I don't think you could possibly produce joy in the world without having joy in the room. Um, but here's the thing and this is you know and again i've differentiated these words this isn't about happiness we're happy from time to time mm. nowhere near every single day mm. right that wouldn't that wouldn't even make sense right the work we do like most people is really hard work we got to fight with clients. We've got to fight on behalf of customers. We have to, you know, we have the hard work we had to go through the pandemic and the economic effects. We have to bind together as a team. Those are not happy moments. The joy is a much longer arc. The joy arc is one that says, we did good work together. We made a difference in the world with the efforts of this team with the processes we use, with the culture we've built, with the people we've hired, how we've taken care of them. But this this joyful outcome is what we're looking for. We want people to come back later and say, I love this offer you created. Thank you, you made my life better because of this. That's where the joy comes from for us. And I think a lot of people get really confused about that. They're thinking it's somebody like rich bouncing in every day with rainbows and unicorns, <laughs> <with> <laughs> them, you know, sparkly lights. And, and look, I'm an optimistic guy. You know, they, they, they often say you know, I'm chief optimist here as well. And my co-founder James is the chief realist. He doesn't even distinguish optimism <laughs> <than> <laughs> and realism. And I get that. And, you know, and the fact matter we have to operate in reality every single day. Uh, But the optimistic part of me says we can do better. We can be a better team together. We can work on the hard problems. We have the same problems everybody else has. These are regular human beings that come in our door every single day. They got things that's going on at home. They've got things in their past life. They've got things going on today. Something went wrong with a car or a kid or something like that. All of that stuff is operable in every human being. And it affects our lives in every single way. The question is, do you have a culture that can work on those problems sooner so they don't blaze out of control? You know, do we do we care for one another? Do we pay attention to how we're feeling? Do, we're, do we, you know, if, if can we shore up another person who's having a bad day, right? It's one of the things we get out of pairing as well is this idea that, hey, look, if you're having a bad day, how about if I carry the load? Now, if you're having a bad day every day, I should be looking at you saying, are you okay, Right. Is there anything I can do to help you? We should care each other for each other enough to pay attention to how each other's feeling.
0: I think that comes back to that whole human message. And this is one of the reasons I really love the whole joy stuff. And I and I love the word because it's not about everybody having fun. And, and I think this is another thing that people get confused about in the whole engagement stuff. It's It's all about, Bean bags and beer and, like you say, unicorns and confetti. And the hard reality of all this stuff is we want businesses to be successful because if they're successful, people have jobs, and we can go on improving. We can do more great stuff for customers. You can be more successful. You can have a better home life. You can have all those things. we got to get stuff done. And for me, that, that outcome of engagement, or in your case, the outcome of joy is that fulfillment you get from really understanding what it is we're trying to do here. Why we're doing it, why it's important, and the impact that we have on others, right? I think that's that to me is the whole
1: point. We're we're 20 years in, we've never had a ping pong table, we've never (laughs) had a bag (laughs) chair, none of that. Now, on the the other side of that, dogs, we'll have one to three dogs in the office every day. Um, There's something about the empathy of a dog that really lifts the spirit of the team, and uh, babies. We have this crazy thing in our culture that says, if you want to bring your newborn to work, bring them to work. And uh, we've had 26 Menlo babies in the last 14 years. Um, and it's not a daycare. The, the baby is actually with the parent. They usually come in at about three months old and they stay till they're about seven months old. And people, I mean, there's some people who are like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Like babies, screaming babies in the room? If they were screaming babies, they wouldn't be in the room. And yeah. we've had a couple of them that the parents decided, you know what, this isn't working. And I get that Mm -hmm. parents always are going to make the right decision. You just got to trust that the parents are going to make the right decision on it. But you know what the little ones, you know what they like, they love the human energy of the room. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Just like, Oh my God. It's, you know, (laughs) the most, uh, you know, I remember one of the moms once, uh, she's like, Oh yeah, I gotta go. You know, I can't bring the baby anymore. You know, it was probably about seven months old because little Maggie, uh, who was actually the first mental baby, She discovered at one point, if she let out what we eventually called dolphin sounds, right, just this squeal of delight in the room, and she would just do it at the top of her lungs, and the whole team would just roar in laughter. And it didn't take her but two or three of those to connect the dots between, I did that. Nice. When I do the squeal, they laugh. And she just started squealing like all the time and the team would laugh every time. And finally, Tracy, the mom said, okay, it's probably time for Maggie now to finally go to daycare.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I I say this every time I just looked at my timer and I'm like, where on earth has the time gone in talking to you, Rich? I, I know I could sit and listen to you and your stories for hours and not even notice that day had turned into night but before i reluctantly let you go can i ask you to think about this point in the show we call sticky notes so i like to leave my listeners three practical small piece of advice you could stick on a sticky note right that they could take away and if they're in a difficult spot maybe back like you were in the original days and they're thinking about this joy this engagement stuff and wanted to make a change what are the three pieces of advice you'd, you'd give them rich
1: Here's a sticky note that's the anti-version, okay, <laughs> just so we're clear. You can write these. Write this on a different color sticky note. Um, if you want to suck the human energy out of an organization, there's a simple three-step process. Number one, have lots of meetings. Number two, do not make any decisions in those meetings. And number three, if perchance by mistake you happen to make a decision, that's okay. Do not act on it and you will pull the life out of your organization, okay? The antithesis of that is take action, overtake a meeting, try stuff. What we like to say here, it's a very common phrase at Menlo, run the experiment. And what I love about the word experiment is this. If you call it an experiment, rather than we're going through a policy change, we're going to shift to some, no, it's just an experiment. Guess what? it may not work. If it doesn't, that's okay. At least we tried something. We learned something. Run the darn experiment.
0: Just brilliant advice. And I cannot thank you enough for your time today, Rich. It was so worth the wait for me. I'm sure it would have been worth the wait for my listeners as well. Yeah.
1: Just amazing.
0: Thank you so much for your time, my friend.
1: Thank you, Andy. I can't wait to see you in person someday share a pint (laughs) i'm so looking forward to that i'm sure perry is
0: too that that's the date i'm i will stick in my diary no question at all well look you take care my friend thank you very much for your time take care andy well that was rich sheridan if you'd like to find out a bit more about him about menlo and all the joyful stuff please check out our show notes so that concludes today's episode I hope you've enjoyed it, found it interesting, and heard something maybe that will help you become a stickier, more successful business from the inside going forward. If you have, please like, comment, and subscribe. It really helps. I'm Andy Gorham, and you've been listening to the Sticky from the Inside podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.